Thanks for the stream, thanks for the download, thanks for tuning in however it is that you're listening to this podcast. Thank you for stopping by Coming Up Next, and if you're not already, go to www.comingupnext.com.au where you can find links to Stitcher, iTunes, Podbean to subscribe to the show. You can also find the show on Spotify and YouTube, so there's plenty of different ways that you can have philosophical ramblings in your ears each and every week. Thank you to comedian Josh Glantz for joining me last week in the chat cave. If you haven't checked it out, that's also available at uh, comingupnext.com.au along with all the previous episodes. Anna Brownfield is my guest this week for episode 153. Anna is a feminist erotic filmmaker. Um, She also makes documentaries and uh, you can find all of her work on her website. Uh, She self-distributes it at poisonappleproductions.com.au. We talk about uh, her very diverse slate of work. We talk about her films, the filmmaking process. We talk about the usual philosophical musings and we're going to talk about it right now. Episode 153. Coming up next, the podcast with Anna Brownfield. So you grew up in Ballarat. I did grow up in Ballarat, yes. And at what point in your life did you make the move to Melbourne? Uh, I finished, oh, I finished, did my year 12 in Ballarat and then I went actually on exchange to South America in Chile for a year and then as soon as I returned there, I, I moved straight away. It was, it was kind of like a given in our household that you would eventually move from uh, Ballarat and go and live in Melbourne to sort of pursue other things. Right. I guess particularly if you're someone who's interested in creative arts. Yes, definitely. I mean, you know, I'd always sort of done a lot of um, acting and a lot of musicals growing up. So, you know, I always had that sort of area of interest. I mean, when I first moved down to Melbourne, I actually studied photography. Uh, And then sort of from there, I did an elective in filmmaking and kind of started realising that my ideas probably worked better as films than they did as stills and sort of decided that I would pursue that. Now, was the erotic side of your filmmaking and your craft, was that something that you kind of have always had a fascination in was it something that was uh that you were very curious about in Ballarat or was it something that kind of came to you a bit later in in life uh I think I've always had a curiosity about sexuality and particularly um women's or female sexuality so um it didn't really start in Ballarat. It was probably more when I moved out of home. I sort of started, you know, I think being in early 20s and living by, you know, living out of home and, you know, it started to explore things more then. Um, also, there was, you know, probably a lot more, um, there was a lot more sort of opportunities, I suppose, in Melbourne than there was in Ballarat to do things without so much judgment. So a lot of that sort of that exploration didn't really happen until I, I had moved out of home. But I did grow up in a household that was very, where sex was very openly discussed. So it wasn't seen as something that was abnormal or to be guilty for, you know, it it was, um, so I suppose I already had sort of a fairly healthy sort of attitude towards sex. Yeah. I mean, what was, uh, 
I think in my household, it was probably the opposite. Um, what was it like growing up in a family where, I mean, obviously you kind of only know your own experiences, right? Yeah. So maybe this is a kind of redundant question, but how do you feel as though that kind of shaped you and shaped what you do now? Well, I think because there wasn't so much shame. I mean, I remember as a teenager, my dad discussing sex at the dinner table with us and my, my brother and I, who are only about a year and a half apart, sort of both kind of cringing, going, <laughs> oh, God, really? Um, but, you know, it, you know we, there was already – there were always books around and we were all – you know, it was always okay for us to read about it and sort of learn, I suppose, the fundamentals of it and things. Um, and, yeah, it wasn't sort of something that was hidden, um, you know, we were kind of a pretty nude, not a nudist, but you know, we you know spent a, you know our household. There wasn't a lock on the bathroom door. It was, and there was only one bathroom. So it was just, yeah, it was a very relaxed environment in regards to you know bodies and sexuality in that respect. So we, you know, I didn't sort of grow up with a lot of shame about my body or uh, you know about being sexual either. So it was just a very sort of considered to be a natural part of life. Yeah. You said uh, earlier that you did, you know, you were doing a lot of acting and and uh, various creative things in Ballarat do you mm. remember your first experience uh as an actor or a creative maybe as a kid or something like that yeah well I I was always uh, I did musicals from about the age of 10 until I was well until I left Ballarat and then I did some when I first moved to Melbourne as well just amateur musicals and I uh, well actually my mum was also involved in those when I was a kid and she's she did um I think it was a musical called which, which I think is actually technically an operetta called Orpheus in the Underworld um apparently when I was in kindergarten and I went off and watched her perform in this and she said I used to come home from kindergarten and ask her to put you know this is back in the day of records so put put the record of Orpheus in the Underworld which apparently I used to sing along and know all the words and she wouldn't hear from me until I'd ask her to turn it over so <laughs> from there and I think for years I'd wanted to be on the stage and go and do musicals and um the company the local sort of junior company wouldn't let you do it until you were 10 so as soon as I was old enough I went off to audition and ended up in the chorus um for my first ever musical which I think was half a sixpence actually yeah yeah right and do you remember at what point you kind of started thinking about merging your fascination with sexuality and with feminism with your creative pursuits I I don't think there was like a sort of, I suppose, a watershed moment where it happened. It, it was just as, you know, I suppose in my early 20s and living out of home and just, you know, trying to find your place in the world as an adult. And, you know, one of the things was exploring my sexuality. And I think it just came through that. And I always kept, um, you know, I always kept a visual diary or a written diary and sort of would draw pictures and come up with ideas and things so I'd grown up very much with a, a feminist mother who's sort of you know and grown up in that era of like well you know as a woman you can do anything and um, so there was that already there and then I suppose I started just looking at I suppose how women were represented sexually on on screen and when I started uni that's sort of one thing I really wanted to focus on of, of that sort of I suppose having that autonomy to create your own images of your own sexuality rather than a lot of what we were seeing at that stage which was very much dictated by uh, I suppose a male point of view. Yeah absolutely I guess what, what did you see the difference between what you were hoping to achieve and what was being achieved or what is being achieved in the mainstream? Well, in terms of erotic films or porn films or in terms of just yeah. film in general? Well, both. Well, I suppose I suppose when I first decided to sort of make, I suppose, an explicit film, it was 
particularly at that stage, there w- there weren't really many women making um, films from a female perspective. I mean, there was Candida Royale in the States and her company Femme Productions, but um, there wasn't, you know, that was really the only person at that stage. And I sort of went, you know, there seemed to be this sort of hole in the market. I mean, this is the beginning of sort of the internet and being able to access, I suppose, pornography a lot easier than, you know, having to go or anonymously rather than having to previously, you know, if you wanted that, you need to go into a sex shop, which was still very much a a male um, environment. Um, So, yeah, I sort of saw that there was a need and there seemed to be a hole. And I I mean, part of it was also selfish as well, going, well, I want to see something that gets me off rather than looking at the majority of this content, which is aimed towards sort of, you know, a male point of view. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess, you know, a lot of the stuff like on your website, for example, is is, um, taking things from, like you say, from, from a female point of view and looking more at, uh, I guess not even necessarily female, but feminine, kind of energetically, uh, the way that that can be represented in film. When you started doing that at uni, you went to RMIT yes. to study. Yeah. When you started uh, exploring that in uni, was there any kind of stigma or um, challenges that you were coming up against from students or teachers? No, not really. I suppose I was, you know, probably like a lot of. Um, people in their early 20s I was pretty pig-headed I think and pretty you know believed in my own self-importance at that age so um no I didn't because I just was like well I'm going to do what I want and I don't really care what you think I think was a bit of my attitude I mean I did get quite a lot of support I think because I you know I I did media arts at RMIT and you know we had people like Phil Brophy and uh, Philip Samatsis and um, so um, we had Marie Craven come in for a while so we had these quite progressive sort of thinkers anyway and that course at that stage was quite progressive Um, you know it was all about uh, you being you realizing your dreams and doing what you you sort of want and and they were there to sort of assist you so in terms of what I was exploring I think sometimes you know people found it confronting but at the same time we were sort of encouraged in that course to be a bit more confronting and to kind of push the boundaries uh, a lot more. Like, you know, a lot of the films were shown and things, you know, that were discussed and so forth in class were were not sort of mainstream, necessarily mainstream ideas of film or it was more about, yeah, pushing the boundaries. Yeah. And when you were like putting pen to paper, were you consciously sort of... Uh, writing i mean what was what was the process of writing the first script that you or putting together the first film that you made oh gosh now i think the first film i made was a black and white super 8 film and that was definitely about that was that wasn't i don't think it necessarily was erotic it was definitely feminist it was sort of about this whole idea i suppose in a symbolic way of, of men being put on a pedestal and being lifted up and then this woman ends up basically pulling this chair out from underneath this guy and um, you know who's on this pedestal and him falling to the ground sort of thing and her walking off triumphantly so um, I don't know writing for me has always been a weird process I think a lot of the time sometimes it can just start with I have an image in my head and it goes from there sort of thing uh, you know I have to admit writing is probably one of the most difficult parts of the filmmaking process for myself I find it pains me quite a lot and I I have to you know do various techniques to make myself actually write because I do find it um yeah I find it really 
quite challenging. So, um, yeah, but I suppose, yeah, as I said, sometimes it would be, sometimes it would be ha- something would happen in my life. I mean, like the, um, the band, for example, I mean, that I was actually working as a door bitch at the tote at the time. So a lot of the script for that came from being around the music, you know, the independent rock scene in Melbourne and sort of just, uh, and I started just asking people, well, I started hearing stories, but then I started also asking, you know, people in bands or managers and like, you know, what's the filthiest story you've ever heard <laughs> <laughs> or you've ever witnessed or you've ever done and so you know from that I sort of started collecting stories that then you know ended up in that film so mm. it I think it just you know it depends on on what I'm sort of approaching um you know with the bedroom but the last sort of explicit film I did you know I basically had access to this amazing space and thought what can I write that's sort of set in one room and then I sort of start thinking oh it'd be good if it was over the decades you know maybe if this room you know what goes on over the decades and you know what happens sexually during each decade so I started sort of researching that so and then the script came from there so it just yeah it really depends on the pro on the um, on the project itself. What were some of the filthiest stories you heard from oh, the band? Most of them ended up in there actually right. um, one of them was uh this band member who shall remain nameless um, told me a story about how they, which was included in the film about cum cards. So they actually, when they went on tour in their Tarago van, they would all receive a pack of cards. And so every time they came, they would leave a card. So, you know, they would, you know, obviously have sex with someone, they'd leave a card sort of thing. So the idea was to try and get rid of your pack by the end of the tour. Um, and one of the most famous stories was, you know, someone actually jerking off in the back of the Tarago and then kind of, you know, throwing the card over to over to the next seat to land on someone's <laughs> lap so that was sort of changed a little bit but basically included in the film as yeah, well yeah you must have heard some pretty wild stories yeah there was some pretty interesting ones some pretty horrific ones as well so um i mean one of the most horrific stories which does end up a little well slightly gentler form in the film um you know i then also set up a sort of a revenge scene to get back for that person who experienced that so right yeah. uh and when you went to shoot your first erotic scene, mm. I mean, that must have been a fairly daunting kind of prospect. Yeah, it, it was because, I mean, before I mean before the first explicit scene, I mean, I had sh- shot simulated sex scenes, but I hadn't shot, you know, a, a real, sex se- real sex. So, yeah, it was. I was quite nervous. Um, the, I think the very first one I did was actually... Um, oh. Excuse the office above us. We don't have <laughs> some people moving moving <laughs> furniture. Yeah. So yeah, the first scene. I think it was actually a solo male mm. masturbation scene. So that was a little bit easier. But I do remember being quite nervous before it. And then I think the first time I did a sex scene between two people. Um, yeah, I was still quite nervous as well. But it, you know, not as nervous as the very first one. So I think you just worry how it's going to go. You know, um, that you're providing a safe and comfortable environment for the performers is something that's important to me. So I suppose I just want to make sure that that's what was happening. Yeah. How do you how do you create a comfortable environment for people to do that sort of thing in? Uh, generally, I try and strip back the crew to as minimum as possible. Often it'll just be myself, the DOP, and that'll be it. Um, you know, it's also, I suppose, chatting to – the other thing as I do is often we talk through and work through the scene beforehand, um, you know, get the – so the performers are comfortable with what – you know, that making – well, they do get a say in, I mean, I might say, okay, this scene's set in the 60s, so these sorts of things mightn't have gone on, but it's about creating a comfortable environment for them, for them to discuss and have agency over what they're actually engaging in the scene so that they're not doing anything, 
you know, they're, they're establishing where their boundaries are and they're not doing anything they feel uncomfortable about. Um, yeah, so we often do that and make it nice and relaxed. The other thing is generally I give a large amount of time to shoot those scenes as well so that it's not such a rushed, hurried sort of like, yeah, okay, we've we'll just got to wham, bam, hey, come on, you've got to get hard in two light. seconds. And the other thing is also, you know, I like the whole process, the, you know, the idea of getting undressed and all this sort of stuff. So there's all that sort of lead up to it as well. It's not just kind of, hey, we've got our clothes off and we're having sex, you know. It's, um, you know, it's about creating, you know, for them also to for it to be well in the, although it's performative still to provide you know a situation where they can sort of um, build up their own sexual desire as well within that scene. When you write the script, are you being very prescriptive with how the scene is going to play out, or is there kind of flexibility in that? Then do you hand that over to the performers? What's your process? Um, generally, it depends on the scene. Sometimes there is quite a lot of description, but often once we actually go to shoot it and it's discussed with the actors it, it will change I mean it's you know I, as I say to them the sex scene that I've written is just a guide it's not a be all and end all so I'm also up for you to add your own input and you know sometimes I may set parameters depending on like with the bedroom because you know often it was of, a, of an era so or, or this was you know meant to be a character who's you know quite innocent or something like that so therefore you know I sometimes will place parameters around that but otherwise they're pretty much it's up to them what they want to do yeah mm. and how genuine do you feel the performers need to be in the pleasure that they're having for me, I mean, I suppose in terms of the pornography that I have liked and enjoyed is to see that people are actually enjoying themselves and it's actually a genuine connection. So that's one thing I try with my casting is to get people who do have a natural chemistry between them because then I think you do get a bit more, you do get a more genuine um, performance and they're actually enjoying what they're doing. So, yeah, that is really important to me. Yeah. I suppose the audience is going to connect better with what's happening and I guess it moves kind of beyond that I guess more patriarchal version of pornography which is probably almost the opposite of what the way that you're describing you kind of set things up where it is just about fucking and getting it getting the job done or yeah whatever the case may be what you're doing is creating more of a, re, uh, a reality, I suppose, or a fantasy. Mm. I mean, I still think it has a fantasy element, but I suppose because also the way I shoot it, I'm not so focused on... Mm. Like, I mean, if you look at a lot of mainstream or commercial porn, it has a quite a formulaic way that scene, sex scenes are shot and constructed. So for me, it's about, will you guys just get onto it and enjoy it and we'll move the camera around and get what shots we can, but it's not sort of so focused on it, it being, you know, I suppose, you know, a gynecological examination. You know, it's it's about being able to see that you know their faces and their you know their pleasure and their joy and stuff as well. It's not, and you know what's going on with them as people, not so much focused on say genitals um, or also being. I mean, as you might be aware, I mean a lot of the stuff in mainstream porn, it's about the positions that people take. Are, you know that they shoot in is about being able to get a camera in there sort of thing. So it's not necessarily a pleasurable or enjoyable position. So that's sort of one thing I really want to, you know, rather than doing that, that it's focused on, you know, they are engaging in positions or acts that bring them pleasure above everything else. Yeah. I guess putting the creative to one side for a second, you said you kind of started doing this when the internet was first becoming uh, a big player in the world of pornography. Mm. And I guess from your point of view, it would be, I'd be very interested to hear how you've seen the landscape completely change. Because I guess it was what, about 2005 that you did your first? 
we actually shot it we actually shot it a little bit before then but it did take a while it took a couple of years to finish I think when did oh actually no we finished it in 2009 I think but yeah we shot it, yeah about 2006 I think we did yeah shoot it and that um, was the money shot no that was that was the band the, the money band. shot's actually just a comedy about a girl well semi-autobiographical girl who graduates from film school can't get a job and decides okay. to make porn <laughs> <laughs> Right, what you know. Well, actually, this came... That film actually... I hadn't actually made any porn at that stage. It actually came out of I Was Approached because a lot of my my undergrad films, my short films, had dealt with sexuality. Um, I got approached by a company in... A guy actually who ran the stripping agency in in, uh, Queensland to um, to make a film and... Because uh, he wanted to sort of another way that he could capitalise on, on the women on his book sort of thing. So, um, yeah, but he was, yeah, he wanted to just, I, at that stage I was interested in doing it, but I, I wanted to do it my own way. And he pretty much just wanted to make, you know, the same sort of stuff that was out there. So I just, you know, went, no. So from that conversation, that sort of script for that film came about. So, yeah, but sorry, what was your question? Uh, we were talking about the way that the landscape of porn has changed. Changed dramatically. Um, I suppose when I first started, um, you know, in terms of like internet, in terms of distribution for the internet at that stage, it was fairly limited. Like most of the time it was still very much DVD sales. Um, you know, the internet wasn't quite fast enough, but in terms of stills and things like that or short clips, that was that was a possibility. And it was, you know, you could make a decent living out of it um, sort of as time has gone on and obviously tube sites have started um that's i suppose now it's becoming harder and harder to actually make if you do want to make a living from it um i mean i don't particularly like tube sites for two reasons um one that it gives children access to pornography uh which i feel is something that people over 18 should access i don't and that's the thing is like i suppose when it first started you had to produce a credit card or you had to produce some sort of id or something before you could access those sites whereas now you know as a five-year-old, you can get on there and access whatever. So I suppose that's one of the issues I have with them. I think also because a lot of it's grown from pirated content as well. So it's, and, you know, because of this now, I mean, obviously in terms of the mainstream industry, budgets have dropped in terms of the pay people are getting has dropped. And um, so it's sort of, you know, and things are kind of having to be pushed and pushed to more and more extremes to kind of make a niche or create a market. So that part of it, I, I you know, I think has changed that I think it was, you know, you could make quite a decent living from it. Whereas now I think the reality is, is it's, it's hard. And a lot of, I mean, I suppose when I first started, there weren't many women making um, pornography. And then sort of, um, I went to Berlin Porn Film Festival where the band opened and all of a sudden 40% of the films that year were made by women and it was great I suddenly found this sort of global network I came back to Australia and had a baby so that kind of (laughs) killed things for a little while but um, then uh, it was it was interesting then though because all of a sudden there had been this community growing in Australia of feminist pornographers so you know we were all doing quite well and it was all going quite you know um, you know but now it's like most most of us have chosen to leave the industry there's only really a couple going and you know they still they're they're struggling now because because you know everyone wants everyone thinks porn should be free or that you shouldn't have to pay for it yeah I guess the maybe the niche nature of it and the way in which you could make money if that's no longer there then it must be very difficult or challenging to kind of persevere 
Yeah, sometimes it is. And I, I have to admit, when I went, um, my last film, I made The Band and I went, uh, The Bedroom, sorry, and I went to Berlin for that. And I have to admit, while I was there, I was sort of like, well, do I keep doing this? It's like, you know, I've made this film. I managed to do some crowdfunding and raise money like that way, well, half of the budget that way. The other half was, you know, my own personal savings, you know, and then at the end, I kind of go, well, how many years is this going to take me to even make back that money that I put in? Not let alone cover, you know, my time and, you know, the energy and effort I put into it. So that's that's when it sort of starts to become hard and you kind of start going, well, do I, do I keep doing this and do I keep making films? I mean, I suppose one of the things I've been lucky is that I haven't relied on it for, you know, I suppose my regular income. So I, I can be – I'm sort of in a privileged position, I think, because I can kind of pick and choose and I can make things that I really want to do rather than just kind of thinking, hey, I have to produce another film this month or this year and, you know, keep just pushing it out. Um, but, yeah, it does – you know, I, I got some money from a company in Spain to make a short, uh, a sort of a scene for a larger film, which was was great. But in terms of getting opportunities to find other sources of funding, uh, your own films, it, yeah, it's pretty tricky. <laughs> so, what do you do to support your habit? To unquote. support my habit, oh well, I lecture at university. That sort of keeps keeps a roof over my head and, yeah. and my bills paid. Um, and look, slowly, bit by bit, it is starting to make me more money. But you know, it's um, a lot of the time time you're doing what which I think filmmakers in all areas do is what I call the filmmaker hustle so you know going you know I there's several different companies I can approach who I'm you know talking with at the moment to make another short film um so yeah but it's just it's that constant hustle and people going well I can give you this amount but it's not the full budget sort of thing and you're just going how am I going to squeeze this around you know so um yeah it does it 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 makes it challenging at times and sometimes I go, oh, I'm never doing another film again. I'm not making any more. Oh, what am I doing? Like, why can't I just want to have, you know, a nine to five job? And um, But then, yeah, something happens. I go, I've got to make another film. And then I get sort of driven and thinking, how can I do this? How can I do this on the smell of an oily rag? And off I go again. So. And when you get to the... Uh, Berlin Porn Festival or um, you know the various other film festivals that your films have played at mm. that's kind of like the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow I suppose yeah it is in some ways um, you know I think it's, it's great to sort of be part of that international community that's that's really awesome but it, um, but you know I mean going to festivals is great and seeing other people's work and meeting up with people you've known you know from out throughout the world is awesome but at the same time I suppose then the logistics of like well this is costing me time and money yeah, to get yeah. to this festival. <laughs> it's, you know, so it sort of comes down to the economics of, and especially with, with a child, it's like, well, this is a week, you know, I'm away from my child and I have to pay for extra childcare and all these sorts of things. So, you know, that's when it sort of, you start to go, well, is, is it worth it? You know, so, I mean, in terms of the connection and the networks, and I mean, it's great to be in that environment because it's so supportive and it's, you know, it's so inclusive and it's great, but, you know, then you sort of come home you know, to the reality of mm. what it all is again. So how do you put a, a value, I guess, on the the purpose or the process of making these films? Well, initially, I think it was definitely about creating an alternative because there wasn't that, there wasn't an alternative voice out there at that stage and particularly from a female perspective. Whereas now I sort of see, like I go to, you know, things like Berlin and I see so many filmmakers, you know, there are lots of female filmmakers, queer filmmakers, trans filmmakers who are making really interesting films. And, you know, I suppose sometimes I go, 
I feel like a bit of a middle-aged woman and I go, well, do I really have anything more to say? You know, like here are all these young people making these awesome films and, you know, making crazy stuff and really pushing boundaries. And so you sort of go, well, do I have anything to add? And mm. I think that that's sort of been a big thing. I suppose now I sort of see maybe it's a time to start mentoring people who are interested, you know, and particularly women who are interested in maybe pursuing this um but yeah I, I don't know I go through periods as I say where it's like I'm, not, I'm never making something again and then yeah I'll go okay no I have to you know it's sort of like it's sort of like if I can't make films I'll I should just die you know so yeah. it's just like I must make films that's the creative uh, crisis I guess yeah yeah and when you do have you know been writing scripts in the past are you considering like diversity in taste or uh or ethnicity or anything like that in what you're writing or are you just sort of writing uninhibited and then taking it from there? Um, I suppose because, you know, I've sort of considered my sexuality to be quite fluid. So a lot of the time I just sort of write what I'm kind of into at that particular time. So, um, yeah, it's sort of – I do – I, I suppose people have always described my films as being pansexual because there is quite a lot of diversity in them and I like to sort of mess things up because I don't necessarily think we're all just straight or we're all just gay. You know, I think we sometimes have interest in other things but maybe they're considered to be taboo or it's not... Ne- so I suppose I like to have a variety in my films so that as you watch it, maybe, you know, you watch a scene with two guys and go, oh, actually, yeah, that kind of is exciting me. But, you know, I suppose that sort of thing of like, well... You know, it doesn't necessarily mean I'm gay, but, you know, does it mean, you know, I can look at other things or, you know, I, you know, there's part of me that wouldn't mind exploring that. So I suppose it's just about opening up sort of ideas and dialogues a lot of the time. Yeah. How have you found um, the kind of best way for people who may have shame around sexuality or certain areas of sexuality have been able to kind of move through that or work through that or kind of open up their mind to different avenues? I think, well, I mean, obviously when people find out what I do, um, people like to talk to me quite intimately. Like to do podcasts with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But they also like to talk to me quite intimately about their sexuality and, and what they get into. And I think a lot of the time it's just about that validation of am I normal? Is this okay? And, you know, I mean, I've I've seen some, ama- you know, I've, I think this job has given me some amazing opportunities to see some incredible things and to witness and you know people at their most vulnerable as well and you know I'm, I'm very grateful that I have had those opportunities so nothing really shocks me so a lot of people do come and talk to me and sometimes I just think oh my god that's so vanilla it's like why are you so worried <laughs> but you know and I think a lot of the time is just saying to them you know well that's fine you know it's all okay I mean my sort of attitude as long as you know you're not hurting yourself or hurting anyone else unless it's consensual and that it's all consensual then you know does it really matter what you get into? Yeah. What are the things that one might consider uh, when they're concerning themselves about whether things are safe or not, aside from the obvious things like consent? Well, I think um, because I've spent a fair bit of time in the BDSM community, for me, um, a lot, you know, that that is, a, I think, is a really interesting. They have a, there's a real strong sort of ethics there, and um, in terms of discussing consent and talking about everything like everything is negotiated and talked about before any play begins so I think through that I learned a lot of you know really good skills and I think I think that's the main thing is getting people to talk about it I suppose that's one way I think you know pornography can help people or help couples that it's like well let's have a look at this and then maybe they can sort of discuss well this is you know something I wouldn't mind trying and you know maybe it opens up that sort of dialogue to be able to talk about it yeah 
What do you think the entertainment industry is like at the moment for women in particular, how, how the status quo is kind of shifting? <sighs> um, Feel free to be controversial. Yes. <laughs> I suppose, I mean, look, I find it really interesting. I mean, you know, I'm also, I also make documentaries as well. So, you know, and recently for the first time I ever got funding. So, which was like, wow. Muzzle what? Muzzle talk. Thank you. Yeah, it was kind of like, oh, really? Like, you're going to give me money to make films? <laughs> oh, okay. What's so, that like? That must be very cool. Yeah, it was, it was real. well, it was nice to be able to pay people and pay people well. That's the thing that was, re- was really good. Um, and just, I mean, it's still, you're still, you know, trying to make the most out of what you've got, but it was... Yeah, it was nice to think, hey, I'm working on this project for the next, you know, month and I'm going to get, you know, it's not a huge amount of money, but I am going to get paid for it. Whereas a lot of the time when I'm working on my own films, I'm not getting paid. So, um, yeah, that was that was great. So, I suppose the thing I find like a lot of particularly in, I suppose, mainstream film here in Australia is, you know, there's this whole sort of thing of like, you know, gender imbalance and women being included and women being in, you know, key creative roles and things I think for me I've always with my films I've always tried to work with majority film uh, female crews um I only generally often on set there's only one um one man if, if that um so for me it's you know people going oh you know we're doing this great shoot it's all women and I go oh well, yeah that's great I've been doing that for years because I just found <laughs> it, it yeah. worked easier you know people were a lot more collaborative it wasn't you know there wasn't sort of so many egos involved um you know and as I said because I like to create a relaxed environment on set it's sort of added to that as well so um but yeah I, I still think it's hard and I think particularly um, you know, if you're a woman and you're choosing to have a child as well and try and return to that industry, it's really difficult uh, because there is this expectation that you will work 12 and 14 hour days and, you know, and you will do this, you know, five days a week, six days a week. So it, it's not um, an industry that's particularly family friendly. And I think for a lot of women that that poses um, a, an issue. And I think it's, you know, I think it's still... Um, there still is an element of bullying that goes on in the mainstream film industry as well. And I mean, I did, I've worked, you know, I worked as an editor, um, I won't name names, but for some sort of companies and some TV stations and things. And I found being a woman, I was sort of dismissed as not having necessarily technical understanding of things. So, you know, and, you know, I found, yeah, people were quite condescending to me as well as, um, you know, um, yeah, it, it wasn't a particularly pleasant sort of thing. And that's sort of when I decided, well, I don't really want to work in this industry. So I've sort of stayed, I suppose, on the outside or well, being an independent filmmaker. So I've always been sort of underground and outside of that industry. At what point did you establish uh, Poison Apple Productions? I actually established Poison Apple Productions, I think, when I was in my final year of uni or my honours year at uni. So, yeah, it's been going since about... 96 97 I think yeah and do you distribute all of your films yourself I do now um initially I mean obviously pre-internet I went through other channels and other distributors um but now yeah I, I just exclusively do it myself um I do sell I do have some content on other people's websites as well but I sort of feel that um for I suppose to Matt you know distribution is where the money is sort of thing a lot of the time so you know so I felt well if I distribute it myself although I may not have a reach as large as some of the other companies at the same time you know when that money comes it all comes to me it's not like I'm getting you know like a lot of companies now won't 
give you um, licensing fees, which they used to do previously. You know, they will just give you a, a share of the revenue. Uh, so it doesn't end up being as, you know, that profitable in that respect. And you're sort of reliant on how many sales they are making. Is it the same in, because I, I know obviously from the film world, but from pornographic world, is it the same kind of, is it those same kind of models of distribution? Uh, in some ways, yes. I mean, there's certain certain websites and things. I mean, obviously, you know, the DVD market has kind of died and died. So that's, it's, it's pretty much all now streaming, um, VOD, you know, downloads is pretty much your, your market. Uh, it's not so much in terms of, you know, territories, so much as, you know, it because most websites will um, not be geo-blocked or will not provide geo-blocking for your material. Yeah, and I guess with the tube sites coming up, it kind of completely changed the game in terms of the way that things would be distributed. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, the tube sites, I mean, they've approached me several times to include content on them and um, I keep on writing back to them going, um, so how much are you going to pay for, you know, what's your licensing fees? And they're like, oh, no, we don't give you money. We'll just give you lots of, you know, we have this amount of users who come onto our website and we'll give you all this traffic to your site. And I'm like, no, you won't. You'll just get someone who will watch a free, free clip, you know, jerk off, get off, and they're probably not going to necessarily follow up on my product. So, um I mean, we have a sort of, I suppose, a group of us around the world and we sort of, we all actually got approached at one time by this company and sort of all decided not to put our work up there simply. And also because we don't agree with the ethics of, of this company as well. I mean, most of the tube sites are owned by a company called MindGeek who um, apparently have offices in Luxembourg, but you go there and nobody's there. Oh, right. There was a great documentary actually by Avidi who was, um, she was a, a French porn star and then made her own films and has now moved into documentary. Doc documentaries about um, it's called pornocracy and it's sort of about how tube sites have affected the industry and you know performers in it as well in a way it's kind of like the way that Spotify has destroyed the music industry because even though people are paying a kind of nominal subscription fee I guess the idea behind the model is that you hear the music from a band that you like and then you go and buy the music or mm. you go and buy the um, buy merch or go yeah. to their gigs. Yeah. People are still going to the gigs, but they're not really paying for the music beyond yeah. that. Similar with the tube sites, although everything is free, you know, uh, my research has shown me that uh, there are, you know, a lot of <laughs> personal companies, research? personal research, <laughs> uh, you know, companies that are put, they put out like what, like a five or seven minute version of a of film. This, mm. A clip of a film with the idea being if you want to watch the rest you've got to pay for it and that's the best way that they've found to kind of counter yep. the inevitability of the piracy mm. um, I don't know where I was going with this but it was just I, I was just thinking about that as you were saying the kind of similarity in, in this um, in this business model that's been created yeah and I, I think that's the thing I think with with you know as you say with music or with film as well I think you know people are kind of going well I can't necessarily even mainstream cinema I think is going well I can't necessarily make money from that and as you say the way is through things like merchandising or having special events or things like that that's sort of often how you make mm, how or self-distribution yeah 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 do you, have you found that to be a successful business model for what you're achieving? Yeah, it does. It does work a lot better for me. Um, you know, I suppose because of just the percentages that I was often, I mean, with some of like with the the money shot that was distributed through another company and that, you know, in terms of, you know, what I used to get a dollar every time a DVD was sold or something, yeah, right. it was just <laughs> crazy. So, um, yeah, it's been good. I do also have one of my films on another site, another feminist um, pornographer's site as well and, and because she's got a quite a hold on the European market that, that does quite well as well. So, 
Great. Yeah. And how do you, I guess, going back to the kind of question we were, or topic we were talking about earlier about how you kind of put a value on what you're doing, how do you then sort of beyond that see projects that you, uh, that you create as having been a success? Um, oh, good question. <laughs> I guess, well, I mean, obviously financially is one part of it, but I think it's also getting emails from people is one thing, like people sort of writing to me and going, hey, I really loved your film or, you know, people, you know, often I'll meet, you know, when people realise who I am, they go, oh, I've got your DVD or I've seen your <laughs> film and I love it. I think it's great. Thank you so much. You know, it's awesome. That would be so, brilliant. Yeah, so that sort of stuff I think is, is you know, that recognition, I think, is, is probably more valuable than any, any sort of monetary gain you can make. Yeah, I guess affecting people is why we create yeah. in the first place. And I think for me, I suppose, because I've always felt like I was quite sort of underground, that I never, you know, I, I get surprised when things are successful. Like, I mean, I made a, a documentary about craft making it handmade, which shot, uh, screened at Melbourne Film Festival, and then a ABC bought it and then you know I did so little mini tours sort of in the countryside with it and it did quite well and the DVD sales went really well on it so I sort of find it um and you know to get into something like Melbourne International Film Festival was a bit of a shock for me because I was like well I'm just this little indie filmmaker you know making films about what I'm passionate about that I was you know it sort of surprises me when it when it does happen so yeah mm. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with me. Poisonappleproductions.com.au is where people can find your work if they want to uh, download it. Um, I finish all of my conversations with the same question. The question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Oh, my gosh. It's probably my whole life, isn't it? <laughs> um, oh. Aside from craft work. Aside from craft, makes me silly. Oh, look, I think because of my background in theatre, I have, you know, the performer in me, so I do like to be silly and I have a small child who is also very into being silly. So I think when the, when we're together, we're, yeah, there's lots of laughter and it's, it's all kind of pretty crazy. <laughs> have you ever uh, thought about jumping in front of the camera again? Um... In terms of a sexual way, I don't think so because I don't think I, I'm not that much of an exhibitionist, unfortunately. Um, in terms of acting, yeah, sometimes I get really excited by, you know, the idea. I mean, I generally will, I, I do have um, Hitchcock moments in all my films. You know, you'll sort of see me popping up somewhere, whether it's as a voice or um, in the band, you know, you can see my ass actually on the front cover of, I think it's called the Big Butts magazine. <laughs> so, you know, I do like to make sort of um, a little Hitchcock appearance in all of my films, so... I suppose that keeps my hand in it. I mean, look, yes, I love acting. It was always my first love. and But, yeah, I don't know whether I'm really that good at it, though. Yeah. D what? Uh, just wondering out of curiosity, mm. if you have any particularly quirky memories of, uh, of your childhood and, and that kind of environment that you grew up in. Um, I don't know, I suppose because it was always that sort of musical stuff was always such a part of my life. It was just, that was normal. But I when I speak to other people, I realise, well, it wasn't necessarily normal. But um, yeah, My dad was always playing show tunes and <laughs> classical music. Yeah. And I just always assumed that grown-ups equaled classical music and, 
and show tunes. Exactly. And similar thing in our house. I think my dad had a little bit of an interest in jazz, so we got that. But I remember, you know, when my brother started getting into music and he was particularly into a lot of punk, so he was playing a lot of Dead Kennedys and Suicidal Tendencies and all these sorts of bands. And it was all of a sudden like, wow, there's like this whole other world of music. I suppose, you know, also being a child of the 70s and 80s, we did spend a lot of time watching Countdown, so we at least knew what the mainstream (laughs) was up to. Yeah. Well... People can do themselves a favour on that note and uh, check out Poison Apple Productions. Thank you so much, Anna. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.